Today's episode is sponsored by my friends at Temple Veth Abraham in Nashua, New Hampshire, and online at tbanashua.org. They welcome everyone to participate in their services and programs throughout the year in their neighborhood or online. I did high holiday services with them for a few years. It is such a warm and welcoming community with a really brilliant leader, Rabbi John Spira-Savat, who's Tove, the Good Place podcast, has also been a sponsor of our show. Thank you so much, our friends at Temple Beth Abraham. It can't ignite, and all you gotta do is bring the light. Cause a new light shine, cause a new light shine. Come to get on up, see tradition is mine. Cause a new light shine. Shalom, everyone. Welcome back to the Light Lab podcast. My name is Eliana. So great to have you here. If you're listening when this comes out, it is Hol Hamoed Sukkot, the days in between on Sukkot, which means we use the greeting, Moadim Lasimcha. And you might want to respond, Chagimuz Manim Lasason. We'll put a link in the show notes for a song that can help you learn this greeting uh, if you'd like to use it today. I hope if you celebrate, or even if you don't, that you've been having a wonderful Chagtober, as I saw someone post about it online and loved that very much. I've been having a really great Chagtober. And right before the holidays, I recorded a bunch of really great interviews that I'm so excited to share with you and today my friends we are talking to the one the only Tony J. Westbrook Jr. Tony is an award-winning Jewish African-American activist, Jewish educator, and community leader. He is the director of Jewish service learning at Repair the World. Before that, he was the assistant director of Hillel at Washington University in St. Louis and the director of Jewish life for capital camps and retreat center in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania. He also serves as a freelance Jewish life consultant and justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion educator and has facilitated racial justice and equity training sessions for BBYO, Base Hillel, Hill International, and the Wexner Foundation. And I heard about and found Tony's amazing education work through his social media presence. He has thousands of followers on Instagram and on TikTok, bringing joyous Judaism to all of them. He earned his BA in communication studies from Fontbonne University in St. Louis, Missouri, and is a graduate of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies in Jerusalem. And he's also the recipient of the Covenant Foundation's 2021 Pomegranate Prize for Emerging Leaders in the Field of Jewish Education. This is someone who has contributed so much to the Jewish education field. And I'm so, so grateful that we got to talk to him. In fact, just last week, Tony was named one of Tel Aviv Institute's top 100 most influential Jewish people. That's like in the world. He is an incredibly sweet soul, and I'm so, so glad to bring you this week's interview with Tony J. Westbrook, Jr. Tony, so great to have you here. Welcome to the Light Lab. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So, so excited. I want to start by going way, way back and ask what prayer was like for you when you were a kid growing up. What was your relationship to prayer? 
So for me, growing up, prayer was the way in which to communicate with God, communicate with the divine. I didn't grow up Jewish. Uh, I grew up in the Pentecostal movement of the, the Black church. And so prayer there looks very different for folks coming from that community. It's ecstatic. It's through dance. It's through praise. It's through worship. And much later in my life, when I sort of officially became Jewish, prayer changed. But whenever I think back as a as a kid, it's very like embodied thing, right? It's it's through music. It's through you know waving your hands in the air. You know, it's it's really this embodied thing, which I think. I still hold a lot of that today, which is always interesting, sort of when and how it shows up. Right. The the past is never really past. It's still a part of our present. I'm wondering also then, when you were younger, what was your understanding or relationship or ideas about God? Were the people in your life talking about God and what God was? Yeah, so my mother who I'm sure will listen to this many, many times, is a, is a pastor, is a minister. And so she really was my my first model of like how to interact with God. Whenever she was walking into a room, she was in conversation with God. If she was in the kitchen cooking, she was in conversation with God. Uh, if we were you know riding in the car, going to Target or going to the grocery store, she was in conversation with God. Um, God was was and still is, I think, for me, this very real entity. I don't know. It's people in my community growing up really talked about God as if God was the person standing next to them in the room. And also this this God of like doing miraculous things for people, right? Um, so if someone's cousin was sick, there was a, a prayer group, a prayer circle that figuratively and sometimes literally formed around uh, the individual for people to sort of lay hands on the the person who was sick and to sort of really channel that godliness through. And I don't know if I'm being totally honest, I don't know if I ever like really subscribed to that uh, as a kid. I always had lots of questions about, I don't know, I've always had questions. <laughs> uh, and sort of in the community that I came from, having questions or questioning sort of about God, maybe not God's validity, uh, but the way in which God showed up in our lives wasn't something that was so encouraged, uh, despite how embodied it was and sort of felt at the time. Right. That's certainly something that I resonate with, and maybe our listeners do too, is coming to that age of the questions. Are there teachers or experiences that you remember that helped you kind of along this journey? Where did you find those questions taken seriously or feel safe asking them? For me, when I started exploring Judaism, I think as a as a way of life um, to the path of conversion, that for me was the first time I encountered being able to ask questions in a religious space. And while I may not have gotten the answer. Um, in great Jewish tradition, almost no one ever like, gets the answer the first time. Even if you ask, like, what's one plus one? 
We all think it should be two, but sometimes it might not be two, right? And so just thinking, thinking about one experience in particular in college, really sort of asking the question why, um, you know, why bad things were happening, why it seemed like evil people were prospering and like I could walk out of my dorm room and go down the street and I could see people who were really suffering and really struggling. And I was really met with like, here are avenues in which we can explore that question together. And it's not a question that, you know, sort of new to the world, but here's what thousands of years of Jewish tradition have to say about this particular moment in time. And something about that was just incredibly powerful that I, I really hold on to. And I try to encourage my students as a Jewish educator. I really try to encourage them to, to ask those questions and to sort of fall down the rabbit hole of, of the Jewish question of why and wisdom and all those different points of access. It's really incredible that you're able to bring that to your students as well, because that is such a powerful part of being Jewish is that the question is part of the journey. The question is part of the point. And like you said, there probably isn't just one answer. There can be so, so many, plus the answers that we also bring to our tradition. That's very powerful. When did the journey to Judaism start for you along with the questioning what do you find kind of brought brought your boat there? I'm imagining like a boat of life kind of floating on a river. It's like, oh, how, how did I how did I get to this place? So I've always been a very inquisitive individual. If you ask my parents, I've been asking questions from the time I could speak. For me, what really the the it's a long sort of beautiful winding road story. Um, the shortest version of it, in elementary school, we had a reading unit that was dedicated exclusively to the Holocaust. And this is in Missouri in the 90s, which I don't know if that would happen now, uh, but I was very happy that it happened when it did. And up until that point, my knowledge of Jews and Judaism was sort of ancient Israelite Judaism, AKA the Old Testament and the Holocaust. And there was really nothing in between and there was really nothing after for me. And I read the diary of Anne Frank and really just like felt like saw my, so much of myself sort of in this young girl's story that it just opened this little window into the world of like, what are Jews? I don't like that question. Like <laughs> who are Jews? What is Judaism? What does that look like today? Are there Jews alive? Uh, you know, do, do I know anyone who's Jewish? Which, like, in my school district, there were three Jewish folk, and we knew that they were Jewish because they all, like, weren't in school at the exact same time in the fall for, like, four weeks, which I now understand. As a Orthodox Jew, I totally get why they, like, disappeared for four weeks. I did a program in high school called Cultural Leadership, uh, that brought together Black and Jewish students to learn about anti-Semitism, racism, discrimination, oppression, all of the big isms. And part of that program was really learning about the other. So in this case, as a Black person, non-Jewish person at the time, learning about my Jewish white peers, culture, history, and religion, and they had to do the same for us. And really seeing that Judaism was this living, breathing entity 
fast forward a few years, I had done that program, went off to undergrad, uh, and was really involved on campus and really wanted to recreate a lot of the friendships and allyships that I had in the cultural leadership years. And at the same time, was going to both church and synagogue. And I really wish I could say, you know, I was exploring, I was really seeking the face of God and trying to find some meaning. It wasn't that at all. What it was, I knew that on the weekends, on Shabbat, Friday and Saturday, the synagogues hosted students for meals. And on Sundays, the churches hosted students for meals. And so me never... I've never liked eating in a cafeteria, and I have always been a fan of home-cooked meals, signed mm -hmm. up for these meals, because I was like, oh, I'm sort of familiar with Shabbat. I like helped my friend celebrate Shabbat in high school. I know what that is. And walking into one of the partner synagogues at the time, having no clue, again, at the time, like what the Hebrew was, what the music was, but it just struck something so deep within me that I like couldn't shake. Mm. And over time, I, I sort of stopped going to church and then was really primarily in sort of synagogue and Jewish spaces. And when I moved back to St. Louis uh, after graduating, found that I like just didn't jive with, with church. Uh, that isn't to say that like church doesn't work, you know, or church, church didn't work for me, and but it might work for lots of other people. And so recognizing that and lifting that up and reached out to one of the rabbis who had taught during our program year at cultural leadership, uh, Rabbi Susan Talby of Central Reform mm. Congregation in St. Louis, Missouri, who is quite literally and just the most wonderful person you'll ever meet. And she explained it this way when I brought this to her and said, you know, this is how I'm feeling. This is really what I'm thinking about. I think I'm sort of always meant to be Jewish. I don't really know what that means. I don't, I don't know anyone who looks like me who's Jewish. Which, if the Tony then could sort of see where the Tony now is and, like, all the Jews of color, both converts and more and more uh, folks who have been born Jewish, who are both Black and Jewish or Jews of color, that Tony would, like, never believe the reality that I live in now. And she put it in this really beautiful way of, you know, we are all born with these garments and, you know, our parents try to fix this up as, as best we can. And so my parents gave me this really beautiful Christian garment that really just supported me in the years that I needed to be supported. And then at some point, you know, maybe it became a little itchy, maybe it became a little uncomfortable. It didn't fit right. And so now I was at a point in my life where I was trying on different garments. And one of those garments was Judaism. And so she said, look, I want you to go out and explore, see where you fit into the community and come back, and if you want to convert through the reform movement, great, but I really want you to see what other options there are. And that started this two-year adventure journey uh, in the St. Louis community of going to all, I think we had 16 synagogues at the time. At some point, I knew all of the rabbis because I was just like, if I got a meeting with them, I was asking them all of my questions. You know, what does it mean to be a Jew in today's age? What does it mean to keep Shabbat? What does it mean to keep kosher? What does it mean? What is it, you know, anything and everything I was asking everyone. Eventually had uh, one conversion through the conservative movement because uh, I felt like it at the time, like orthodoxy was slightly too much for me. And I felt like reform like was great, but it wasn't like where I particularly fit in. And so the conservative was sort of where I, I found a home. And so after two years of study, uh, my rabbi, uh, Rabbi Ari Kamen, 
said, Tony, I think you're ready. I said, I'm not ready. You know, I need to, I need to learn all of these other things, uh, which of course is sort of life, right? And went before the Beit Din, uh, went into the mikveh, came out Jewish, super excited. I felt like I was missing some experiences. One of them being camp. Uh, now I'm an outdoorsy person. Back then I definitely wasn't. And so it was like, I don't want to go to camp. Uh, the other one I knew I could sort of change, which was becoming a bar mitzvah. So I went back to Rabbi Kamen and said, you know, I want to become a bar mitzvah. What does that mean? What does that look like? And so I embarked on another two-year journey of learning and discovery, really diving deep into liturgy and how liturgy flows and, you know, why we say certain prayers at this time and not at this time and sort of the, the structure and how the, you know, what we do as Jews in most synagogues today mimics what we did as a, as a nation in the temple um, thousands of years ago. Um, and on my 28th birthday became a bar mitzvah. Fast forward, there were a lot of years spent in Israel studying because I wanted to learn more. The question of why seems to like get me in, not trouble, but it always leads me to like these unexpected places. Uh, so I spent almost four years in Israel, uh, learning at Machon Pardes in Jerusalem, really immersing myself in the Jewish question of why, why text, why Mishnah, why Talmud, why Israel, you know, just really everything and anything. Eventually did get those summer camp experiences because then I worked at Capital Camps in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania as the director of Jewish life for a number of summers. And then landed a fantastic job at Hillel in St. Louis. And now I have my my current role. Somewhere along the way, I had another conversion, uh, an Orthodox conversion. Because of the time I spent in Israel, I realized I'd become much more uh, religiously observant uh, and was really living my life within a halachic framework. And so for me, that conversion was sort of a like checking off the box so that I could, so that the outside sort of matched the inside, if that makes sense. That's the shortest version <laughs> that I can give well, you. The <laughs> shortest version, but with, with so much, with that question of why, like you said, it's incredibly powerful. And like you said, it does take us to some interesting places. I want to give a shout out to Rabbi Ari Kamen because he was my camp counselor when I was a kid and is still a dear friend. So that's really special. <laughs> I love him. He's, he's really fantastic. Shout out, shout out Rabbi Kamen. Shout out Rabbi Talvi. Shout out all of these different people and places that you were able to explore along your way. I'm thinking about when you were doing this deep dive into liturgy, into the how, what, where, when, and why of liturgy, what spoke to you about that? What of the things that you were discovering were things that made you either wonder or stop and say, wow, this is something that I want to be a part of. I'm thinking about how when we do B'nai Mitzvah education for kids that are that young, it's a challenge to explore all the things that we want to explore. And as an adult, you really got to set the course and set the tone. And I'm wondering, what are the gems that you picked up through that? I love that, that question and that framing. For me, Judaism is really rooted in intentionality. And I, I think somehow, somewhere along the way, that is that messaging has been lost. 
Um, I think it has particularly been lost in the way that we do B'nai Mitzvot in today's modern world, whether you're Orthodox or Reform or Conservative or anything and everything in between. Um, I, I think that intentionality has been lost. One of the things that I was really surprised about, uh, and this is a shout out to one of my favorite people in the world and dear, dear teacher, Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammerkasoy of Machon uh, Pardes in Jerusalem. When we were learning Mishnah Brachot, uh, the Mishnah that deals with essentially like all of the blessings that we have the opportunity to say, very intentional about not saying like that we have to say, but I think it's an opportunity for us to connect to the divine uh, by saying these things. Uh, the one that I was really struck by and the I always mess up the story in the Mishnah, but the question of when can one like say the Shema, if someone's like working in a tree, do they need to come down to be sort of on the ground to say it, to really sort of be firmly planted and rooted where they are? Or if someone is traveling by cart, I guess, as one did in those days, you know, do, do they need to pull over to the side of the road to say it? And the rabbis come up with all of these different explanations for why they should or shouldn't. And for me, what really comes through is that the rabbis, and, and again, this is, I think for me, it's sort of the, the piece that I really hold on to. The rabbis really try to find different access points, the way that I read it. Uh, they, they find different ways for people to connect in whatever situation they find themselves, as opposed to just saying, well, if you're already up that tree, you stay up there and you you don't say it, you know. Rather, they, they give you these different options of maybe you should climb down, you know, and just take a break from work to say it. Or maybe if you're traveling, you should, you know, set aside a moment to say it here. Uh, and really trying to meet people where they are, recognizing that, you know, not everyone is this sort of like pious individual who's just learning and studying and, and praying all day, that's not really, I think, how Judaism is set up. We're like a, we're a working people. We've, we've got lives where we're out and about. And so like, when can we find those moments to, to really be intentional, to say these various brachot, these various blessings? Another one that I am struck by about that, like, again, just sort of elevates this notion of intention intentionality it's the Asher Yatsar blessing. One says after, you know, using the restroom. And in the language of the blessing, it's really praising God, praising the divine for just creating the body in a way that makes everything work. And I had never thought about it. You know, I've learned it, said it every time I went to the restroom, really didn't think twice uh, until there was a, like, a medical problem that all of a sudden made using the restroom impossible for me and then it took on all new meaning i don't know it's there's a there's a real intentionality there's a real it gives us these moments to really just stop in our busy day-to-day -day lives to just notice the small things there's blessings for for eating fruit from a tree fruit from the earth also known as vegetables uh like i i love saying a a blessing over eating up a uh, a french fry uh because it's it's a fruit from the earth so like it's super exciting it sounds super cheesy sometimes and my friends are always like tony like don't don't do that 
just just eat the french fries but it gives us it just gives us this framework to just stop and notice and that for me is the the piece that i really hold on to i love that that's a huge part of blessing practice for me and it's also i'm reflecting on how the your journey can seem you know, to the outside, like such a huge monumental thing. And it is, but it comes to life in these small moments, in the small moments that we all experience and bringing a little more intentionality to them, which I think is really powerful. Speaking of small moments, that's a strange segue, but we're going to get there. Um, the reason we were connected is because of your presence on social media as at from Jewish Black Boy. Um, I don't have TikTok, but I have Instagram and I love watching TikToks that people send me on Instagram um, <laughs> and yours come up all the time. And there is such Jewish joy in your online presence in a space that can be so filled with vitriol and questionable things like you are an absolute ray of sunshine. And I'm wondering, first of all, how did that start and what is it like to share these kind of little moments in your life as a Jewish person publicly with thousands of people? So it started as a result of the pandemic. Um, I was working for Wash U Hillel in St. Louis at the time, and students had been sending me TikToks for months, and I, had, I just had no clue what it was. I was like, this is great. I don't know what this is. I'm not sure why this person is dancing or why the cat falling off of this thing. I should be laughing at it. Like, it's sort of funny. Not entirely sure what it is. Great. Keep sending them to me. And slowly but surely, I started getting comments from them when they would send these messages because they were all still at home at the time. And we didn't know if they were going to be able to come back in the fall back to campus. And they said, Tony, you should make some videos. I think it would be hilarious if you did it. Like, follow all the trends. And I said, I will make an account on the condition that I don't make any content. I just want to like see what you guys are doing, but not in like a creepy way, just to like know that you're still alive and that you're like thriving, even though we're all like really challenged by this moment. And this was the early days of the pandemic. And so fast forward to August, we got the word that students were gonna be able to come back to campus. I like made, I think my very first video was like, a children's book of me reading the word weasel in Hebrew. And then that was it. And like three people watched it and they're like, oh, I'm done with this. Nobody watched my stuff, wiped my hands clean. I made another video and some people, like more than three people watched it. And it was like, oh, this is okay. This is weird. And then I made a video of like finding my, my mock stores, like just in time for Rosh Hashanah. I figured what I wrote is the caption, but I was just like dancing around on my roof with them and like 500 people watched it. And it was like, oh, there is something to this. And then for me, the the big breakthrough moment of like, oh, there's there's really something here. I made the, the video right before Yom Kippur, Ben Platt, uh, and I always forget the actress's name, uh, but they had done it on Instagram. And I saw the, I saw the video on Instagram and Facebook like a year or so before. Was it Beanie Feldstein? Was that the, don't need anything. Think about yes. your sins. Don't need anything. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I think that so was I her. Just, we'll I, double check. Yes. And so I was just like sitting outside of Hillel uh, as we were getting ready to like prepare for evening services. Uh, and I just had a few minutes. And so I, you know, 
think about your sins, think about your sins, think about your sins, don't eat anything. It was a, not even 30 seconds, it was a 15 minute clip. I like posted it, turned my phone off, you know, went into the evening to do Yom Kippur things. And it was only after Yom Kippur ended and I turned my phone on uh, and my boss like slacked me and was like, what does it feel like to be a superstar? And he was like, you know, shout out to the Washu Hillel team. It was like, Jackie, what are you talking about? And she was like, on TikTok, like, I, have you not seen it? And so then when I went back and looked, I think at that point there were like over 100,000 views in the, you know, 24 hours. And so that for me was the thing that sort of like started, it started off as a joke of like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'll do it, but I'm not going to make any content. And then it was like, okay, maybe I'll make some like silly videos just to brighten people's day. Cause there's enough terrible things in the world and I don't want to contribute to that. And so as I just continued to create things, one of the things that became very apparent, I think for, for many Jews, right, wrong, or indifferent, the way that the world tells them they should relate to their Judaism is through trauma. I saw lots of creators who were constantly making Holocaust jokes or like really gross anti-Semitic content. And I sort of made the conscious choice that, A, I wasn't going to engage in like any of that because it there's already enough people out there putting out trash. I'm not going to add to the <laughs> ever-growing garbage heap. And I was like, I, I think being Jewish is the coolest thing in the world. It gives me a framework for how to live my life. Uh, if I re like, if I really wanted to, it could quite literally dictate what I did from the time I woke up to the time that I go to sleep. And in some cases it does. It like gives me that framework of like, oh, at this time, Tony, you should be awake so that you can say this blessing, or you should be thinking about prayer around this time of the day, or you should think about giving charity or serving the community in these ways. And I, by nature, I like to think of myself as a, a, a joyful person, a jokester, uh, if you will. My mother always tells me I should have been on Broadway or or something, but here I am, a Jewish educator. And I don't know, it's just, there's just, there's so much just hate and really just gross anti-Semitic things on TikTok in particular, uh, that seems like it, no one is moderating it, no one's watching it, despite the fact that myself and many other Jewish creators have like made content about calling these other creators out, this other really not so great content out. And so for me, it's it's sort of this cathartic thing to just like share the joy that I have for being Jewish sort of with the world and doing it in a way that's accessible, doing it in a way that's fun, in a way that's, that's meaningful. I'm working on a series now because I, I just moved of like, what does it mean to set up a Jewish household? Uh, and so, you know, I have dishes that I haven't used yet. Uh, mostly because I, I want to record this, uh, but I have dishes that I haven't used yet that I want to take and I want to toyvel them. I want to, you know, kosher them, make them kosher. Uh, so what does that look like for people that have never done that, never seen it? Putting up a mezuzah, what does that look like? It's incredible to see how accessible you make this because also by making it joyful, you're making it accessible and showing how it doesn't matter how you ended up 
within the Jewish family, these traditions and these rituals are yours also. You mentioned the the challenges of social media, the anti-Semitism, the anti-everything. It can seem like a dark and scary place. I'm wondering though, what are the positives? Like what have you gained? What have you found through engaging on social media in this way? Like what, if anything, is is the saving the saving potential of of all of the social media? What could it do for us? It might sound uh, counterintuitive, but really the the human connections that I've made with people, I think back to some of the just like what I thought was sort of silly, fun, high holiday content of like, oh, here's me in my sukkah. And just like making a funny video about drinking too much coffee and being up all night in my, my sukkah of how people like that resonated with so many people who had grown up, you know, going to their grandparents' sukkah and, you know, as they like moved away and became adults, they just lost sort of touch. And it was this moment in which it sort of brought them back and they were now rethinking how they wanted to be back in community, curating, I think, an online community, which there's something to be said for, you know, having an in-person community. Uh, but I think for, there was a particular moment uh, during the pandemic, and it's still so to this day, but I don't think as, like, to that great extent, in which people really were coming together as a community. And so people who were in these really small towns in Missouri that were watching my content and then sending me these really beautiful notes and emails about, you know, what it meant to them, where I think some of the criticism, and I often try not to read some of the negative comments or things that come in my inbox, but some of the things like, why are you doing this? This is really stupid. You should spend your time doing other things, which no one wants to hear. And I mean, they're, they're like not wrong, right? I could be spending my time doing other things, but this is how I'm choosing to spend my time because it's clearly reaching a number of people. It's it's making a difference in their lives in some small way, even if it's 30 seconds of them like smiling and laughing. I've now been able to help thousands of people smile and laugh in a world that increasingly dark. And to the point about accessibility, I recognize that not everyone is fluent in Hebrew. Not everyone is fluent in, in Aramaic. And I think often the tradition and particularly like the world of textual study and ritual often seems relegated to old Jewish men in black hats. And the reality is this is this is all of our it's it's we all own it. It's up to us to pull a book off the shelf and start reading. And to like really be active participants in curating our own Jewish experiences and building our own Jewish identity. That's so beautiful. And what you're doing is you're showing people that it is possible to curate your own Jewish identity within the context of a larger community and system. That's one of the ways that I think it's so powerful is that little jolt of Jewish joy is also incredibly subversive in a landscape that, you know, where 
anti-Semitic statements and almost literal and also literal Nazism is a thing again, how it's, it's, you know, <laughs> how, how is this a thing? It is still a thing. You like putting on to fill in, wearing a tallis, dancing, praying, kissing a mezuzah, holding your masor with such joy is like the most subversive it's a subversive act and it's a rebellious act and an important one. At least that's how, at least that's how I see it. And I know, at least for me, any negative stuff is hard, especially from people that, you know, they say, why don't you do something else? And I'm thinking, why are you spending your time sending negative comments to creators on the internet who are just trying to spread some joy? Like what's, what's your life like, man? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What must that be like? Blessings to you. Okay. I'm wondering how or if being a publicly facing Jewish person has impacted your personal Jewish life. Like how, how has, yeah, how has been outward facing affected your, your inner Jewish life? That is a question that I don't think about very often. And I'll tell you why. I think for me, I visibly Jewish whether I'm on camera or not, I'm always wearing tzitzit, always wearing a, a kippah. Some folks know it as a yarmulke. Like I'm, I'm always very visibly Jewish, and so I'm like always thinking about that. I often <laughs> am a leader in the communities in which I find myself, and so also thinking about, you know, as a leader, what does that mean? Are people looking at me? differently? Are they holding me up to different standards? I mean, I hold myself to sort of unrealistic standards, so I'm not worried at this point in my life about other people's standards. Uh, really, right now, just, just meeting my own standards is enough of a challenge. I think for me, what it has really done, and this is like a lesson that I really learned hard and fast at camp, is that I have to know it, whatever it is, sort of in this Jewish context, I have to know it for myself. Because the moment someone asks me about it, I really have to be able and ready to explain, you know, the why, the who, the what's of what it is I'm doing or participating in. And it sort of like just reinforces the knowledge that I already have. And I'm very transparent if I don't know something. I'm not, like, if you ask me what to fill in are, I'm not going to be like, oh, it's this magical box that we as Jews put on and now we have superpowers. I mean, I personally think that, but I'm also not going to, you know, just make up something. I'll say, oh, you know, I actually don't know what, you know, what this thing is or what it's about, but let me go do some research. Let me go, like, check a Talmud, look in the Mishnah, and, like, find out where this comes from, why we do this or why we don't do, you know, this certain act. It like it for me, Judaism is a sort of experiential religion and culture, and it it really forces the participant to constantly be engaged. Again, although I I think some of that has sort of been lost in communication throughout the the ages, but it really forces us to to think about the things that we're doing, why we're doing them, or at least that's how I how I view it. I think that framework is there. Um, I don't know if everyone necessarily taps into it, but that's that's how I navigate that. Yeah, and I think what's powerful about you as a Jewish educator also is 
and I think about this a lot, the best teachers are the ones who not only have a grasp intellectually of the material, but who are teaching you because they love it so much, or this brings so much joy or meaning to their lives, or they're geeking out over it, and they just can't wait to share it with you because they care about you and they want you to have access to the same amazing thing that they do. And so you are keeping an incredible sense of integrity, but also becoming an, a, a better educator every time that you do that, because through your TikToks, through your Instagram presence, and also through your interactions, you're saying, Judaism has brought so much joy to my life. I want to share some of that with you. And that means a lot more than, well, I was told that I have to teach you this thing, so I'm going to tell you about this thing, right? There's a huge difference. And that joy is like, that's the conduit. That's the thread that's able to run, I think, from one person to another and reaches out even in like a tiny screen in a little box that we're, <laughs> um, that, that we're seeing. I'm wondering, as we start to wrap up our conversation, is there a prayer or a Jewish spiritual practice or a piece of liturgy that you found particularly resonant these days, just in, in your own prayer life? So it's not technically a piece of liturgy, although it could be. It comes from the Gemara and uh, the Mishnah of the second chapter, the Tractate of Pirkei Avot, uh, the ethics of our fathers, ethics of our ancestors, if we're being more inclusive, that Hillel used to say, those who are overly concerned about embarrassing themselves won't learn. And that, for me, is a quote that has really become a piece of liturgy for me. It's within sort of Jewish thought and Jewish canon, but it's not something that like we, we sing about on Shabbat. It's not something we say every day the way traditional Jews pray and for me i i think about it i've like written it into like the front cover where my name is like this holy book belongs to tony blah 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 and then that quote is there because i for me it it's maybe one of the more powerful pieces that isn't technically a prayer that has become a prayer for me that if i am consistently thinking about how I'm, you know, I'm going to mess up this thing or how I'm going to be so embarrassed if I, if I do X, Y, and Z that it prevents me from ever doing it or ever trying, then I've already failed. I've already lost the war. And just like really being transparent, really like putting it out there. Like, I don't know everything. There's more in Jewish tradition for me to learn than I will ever know in my lifetime. I mean, I'd love to get to a point where I knew everything, but let's be realistic. That's not going to happen. <laughs> and so for me, this just like, and I, I always say this right before the, right before the morning blessings, we're, we're really thanking God. We're thanking the divine for, you know, returning the sight to the blind, for clothing the naked. There are some pieces of the traditional liturgy, you know, that I, I may not say because I've like, have strong feelings about it. One in particular, it's like for men, we say, you know, blessed are you, God, who has who has not created me a woman. And for women, it's it's something akin to, you know, who's created me like as I am. 
And I often find myself saying the other rather than the the piece of like, thank you for not creating me as as a woman. And I've I've read many of the commentaries about that, about how it's because women aren't so obligated to do as many mitzvot and yada yada yada. And I hear that, and I know that that works for some people. It doesn't work for me, and I really resonate with the idea of like really thanking the divine for creating me as I am, as this imperfect being, as this person who who is messing up, but is also learning, who's also funny, who's also all of these like whatever adjective you'd like to add on to the the Tower of Tony. For me, those are sort of the two pieces that I I think. I think about on a daily basis, I say on a daily basis, I meditate in some capacity. It's like written everywhere. So it's a constant reminder for me. It's so indicative of how accessible you make Judaism and how personalized it can be because you've taken a line from our wisdom tradition and turned it into a prayer for yourself. That's incredibly powerful. That's a little ritual that people can take. What does it mean to find a line that speaks to you and to hide it in places like a little note for yourself to find as a reminder it's beautiful absolutely it's beautiful ah <sighs> is there is there anything else that you'd like to share with our light lab audience any anything that we should take away from our conversation together i often get the question or the comment under some of my videos of, you know, I, I'm really struggling with my faith. I I want to do so much more. And often I take that to mean in terms of observance, you know, gaining Jewish knowledge. And if people walk away with nothing else, I want people to walk away knowing wherever you are in that moment is where you're supposed to be. And that is the starting point for you. That might mean for some people going off to school to get a degree in Jewish education, Jewish studies, whatever. Uh, for other people, it might mean going on Rabbi Google <laughs> uh, and asking a question and going through all of the, the search options there. Uh, for other people, it might mean, you know, instead of going out to the movies on Friday night, that you, like, actually stay home with your family and watch movies. And while I know that might sound, like, heretical and the, the more orthodox and more traditional spaces, there are many ways to do and to be Jewish, and there's no one way that's more authentic or more right than another way. And so in that sense, wherever you are in that moment is exactly where you need to be and start off doing things in a small way, something it can just be writing a post-it to yourself uh, and then reading that post-it in the morning. It can be I don't know, setting an attention for the day, whatever it is, just these small steps. Um, I often think about the Tony of, you know, 15 years ago, looking at where I am now. And like, I don't even think that version of me could have ever conceived, like right now, us having this conversation on Zoom of like, Tony, you're a Jewish educator. I didn't go to school for that. I was supposed to be a cardiovascular surgeon. And like, things change and being able to go with the flow and just recognizing that wherever, really wherever you are is, is where you, where you're meant to be in that moment. Amen. That is a prayer that you have given us. Thank you so, so much for taking the time 
to speak with us today. What an absolute joy. Thank you. This was fantastic. I love talking with you. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our editor, Christy Dodge. Thank you to Yaffa Englander, who does our show notes. Our theme song is A New Light by me. <laughs> thank you so much to Temple Beth Abraham in Nashua, New Hampshire, and online at tbanashua.org for sponsoring today's episode. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at thelight.lab. We are so, so grateful for you listening and sharing the podcast and going on this liturgical and prayerful learning journey with us. And we'll see you again very soon. Then he is good.